Hiya, friends. Ted King here. Welcome to King and the Ride podcast. I hope your summer is going well. We, the King family, we are in the peak heat of summer, literally and figuratively. We are traveling in the van all across the West. Uh, picked up the van, which we had left in Colorado, went off to Last Best Ride in Montana, and then off to Park City. We're here in Steamboat, Colorado, where I raced SBT and where this episode was recorded. Today's episode is with a good friend, a consummate professional, a lifelong cyclist, an industry insider, perhaps, uh, someone who wears many hats at the SRAM Corporation and executes her job seemingly always with a smile on her face, ladies and gentlemen, Anna Gretas. Now, I won't wax on and on about what Anna does at SRAM because we're going to go into that in depth today, but among her jobs... as it's been for more than a decade, is that of a bicycle mechanic. Now, perhaps intuitively, perhaps not. A female mechanic is, or I guess is not, the norm, which makes it a really cool and exciting and, and makes for a really fun and interesting conversation. So I'm thrilled to present this one today. I feel like I'm saying this a lot in these intros. Please pardon the real world studio, which in this case is a garage in Steamboat where there's a revolving door of characters looking for a little help from Anna, as we are a day or two before the race, also just looking to say hello. So forgive those interruptions. As I said on the top of the intro, we are on a road trip. From Steamboat, we're heading off to Crested Butte, then to Telluride, maybe Moab, some really cool mountain bike towns along the way. Among the infinitely long list of things to pack into the van, for me, for Laura, for our kids, for our bikes is AG1. Amid the Allen tools and the tires and shoes for all occasions, there sits my travel packs of AG1, formerly Athletic Greens. One sachet goes into a water bottle every morning, a quick shake, and then I drink down the single comprehensive supplement to support foundational health that I look for every day. I am nearly sure how ubiquitous it is these days that you've at least heard of AG1 or Athletic Greens. Let this be the chance for you to try it. Visit drinkag1.com slash Ted King if you are looking for a simpler, effective investment in your health. Again, try AG1. You'll get five free travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash Ted King. That's it. That's all. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Anna Gretas. Let's set the scene from here in the garage of a rental house. Um, if I am going somewhere, if I, like I will often know the next one, two, three months of my schedule down to the day. I'll be like, June 27th, I'm flying here. Or I shouldn't say that because we're now in August. That's the real world studio. This is what's really happening. I don't think this is for me, but this might be for me. I'm expecting a wheel delivery. Nice. Um, we had a, a last-minute request for a replacement. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody was getting sendy, um, so I've been waiting on a wheel that was supposed to be one day shipped. Yeah. We're in day three. Oh, man. <laughs> That's frustrating. So this is what uh, this is what the joy is of uh, race weekends. I'm just standing here and waiting to see if he's. Oh, yeah. Wheel box. Look at that. That's for me. Score. <laughs> it has a distinct wheel-shaped yeah. 
Hey, how's it going? Good. I've been waiting for this one. Thank you. You too. Now the next question is, did they send the right wheel? Uh, I just looked at the label, and it's not the right label. However, we get some wheels in more bulk sizes, so we have to repackage them into yeah. uh, used boxes. So let me, before I get paranoid, yeah. double-check that. Success. Whew. All does well. All right. Is that a 303? That is a 303S. Nice. Front wheel. Yes, that is the sound you don't want to hear from your wheel. Uh, particularly if there's a tire uh, inflated on it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Anna. Hello. Hi there. Thank you for taking the time. This Absolutely. has been a few months in the making. Which is relatable to my first question in some way. So if I'm, if you're anything like me, I look at a calendar and I, I can know where I'm going to be for the next one, two, three months, mm -hmm. down to the day. I'll be like, so here we are in mid-August. Uh, I'll be like, September 23rd, for example, I know I'm going to a wedding. It's a good thing to keep an account. It's a good thing to make sure that I don't double book myself for. Yes. Not my own wedding. I'm going in attendance. But then once something has happened, I forget where I've been, and I have a terrible time readjusting my mind to be like, uh, where, where was I? Where am I? <laughs> Speaking to somebody, you, who travels arguably more than I do, how do you fit in that spectrum of knowing where you are, when you are in that schedule? I think I'm a little bit um, not as far planned out in the future. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely know where I'll be in like the next few weeks, but if we go like four weeks, maybe I'll have an idea, but it won't be to the day. I'll just be like, I have a race this time, and at some point I will show up. Uh -huh. um, my timings of when I arrive is very much dependent on the race, how many athletes are there, how hard it is to get to, um, things like that, because I want to make sure I have enough time before the race to get everything done on bikes, but not too much time where I'm there before all the athletes are, and then I'm just twiddling my thumbs for a day, mm -hmm. which, you know, isn't the worst. These are usually pretty cool places to ride bikes, and I get to bring a bike with me, so... In general? Yeah. Are you... Well... But I do have to remember where I am and yes. what has happened previously. Because yes. um, one part of my job as well is to provide uh, feedback from uh, the race, from bikes to our engineers, mm -hmm. um, so that we're able to kind of adjust product or develop product that will suit the needs better. Yep. So, yeah. If you, my dad used to say when he couldn't remember somebody's name, if you were a name tag, what would it say? I know your name. If you were a business card, what would it say? Because I know what you do in terms of helping me out and helping other athletes out, but what is your job title? And then expand upon that. What does it entail? Yeah, this is where things get super messy. <laughs> um, so I, my official job title is, um, uh, well, I'm in SRAM Racing Road um, in Road Sports Marketing, and my official job title is road race technician. Uh -huh. um, so a lot of words to basically mean I am kind of the point person for um, our pro athletes 
and that we have contracted in the road racing department. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's everything from placing orders, from um, giving tech support, um, obviously delivering orders of parts and um, helping through things as the season goes. Um, it's collecting feedback on product and making sure everything's working well. Um, and then passing that along to our engineers um, to make sure that we are making good products. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I also come to the races and um, do a lot of wrenching. Um, for gravel, that's a big part of the scene because there is not as much support to it as um, other disciplines. Yeah. Um, road racing on like world tour level is is way different. You have a, whole, a full crew, tells you what to eat, they'll give you the massages, deliver you to the start of a race, oh, yeah. and uh, pick you up at the end. Um, and on gravel, you got to do all that yourself, plus take care of your bike. Um, which is definitely a, a fine-tuned skill. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's not why you're racing. You're racing because yes. your body can do it. I'm not um, racing because I'm a good so, mechanic, that's for yeah. sure. So that's a big gap to fill on the gravel side. And on a broader picture, I manage gravel globally. Um, I do a bunch of work with cyclocross as well. Um, I work with our um, American and Australian triathletes. Huh. Um, and then I will pop over for um, some world tour road racing. Um, so I get to do like the classics. I get yeah. to do like Roubaix and Flanders. Roubaix is my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a couple of weeks ago, I just got back from Tour de France Femme. So. Avec Swift. Avec Swift, yes, thank you. Tour de France Femme, Avec Swift. That's <laughs> uh, been a funny point of conversation, just how well they've beat that into all of our minds. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting that road is in your job title, given the domestic state of road, yes. which is fledgling or yes. uh, floundering, depending yes. on your perspective. Uh, gravel is sort of, sort of taken off in the meantime. I recognize a gravel bike is akin to a road bike, and that's probably where that correlation lies. But also, there's that overlap with mountain bike that's happening, too. Yeah. Um, especially with yeah. the Grand Prix, you're getting a lot of athletes who are kind of crossing those boundaries that have been very strict in the cycling world. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of brands, and including SRAM, has been very um, separate between road and mountain because that's always been a very different thing. Yeah. Um, but with gravel, like we're seeing that just blur into oblivion. Sure. And so now it's it's a little bit... Um, confusing as to who fits where and, and how to support everybody. And it's it's a whole interesting new logistic to consider. It's crazy. Um, so you're, look, are you, you're helping with Legion of Los Angeles, for example. Um, that is another race tech that we have in the States okay. um, who, who mainly works on the crit side of things. Gotcha. So um, Legion, Miami, and Austin are the three teams of the legion um group um so yeah we have someone else who is who's mainly in charge of that and which helps i don't have time for that (laughs) so they're able to really focus in on that team and make sure they have everything that they need and yeah um okay you you went to flanders and roubaix this year yes you went to tdf Men's and TDF women's? Not the men's, just the women's. Okay. Did you go last year? The more important one, really. Let's be honest. Naturally, 100%. (laughs) What does your job look like when you go to any one of those, for example? 
It's very different. Yeah, yeah, especially from what happens here in the States. In the States, uh, it's way more hands-on because that support structure, again, doesn't exist. So (laughs) kind of filling that hole for a lot of people. Um, But in Europe, you know, you have a massive team. You you have a bunch of mechanics, and they do a fantastic job. They know what they're doing, like can do it all with their eyes closed pretty much. They're they're top level. Um, So a lot of what happens when you go over to Europe is a lot more, like, relationally based and just making sure you're available if there's anything question-wise that pops up or um, anything like that. Um, So... That Europe is a lot more relaxed, um, and you just kind of hang out with the mechanics a bit, make sure they have everything that they need, um, and that you know you're available for anything that might pop up. And how often does anything pop up? Um, not too often, honestly. Um, the products we've had around for a few years, so any of those like small things that you just kind of have to learn along the way are, are things that we've already addressed. Um, so it's been going really well lately, which is always really nice. Of course. And it's got to be interesting doing something like a Roubaix or Flanders, which uh, they're not a typical road race, mm-hmm. so they might be doing different gearing. I mean, yeah. I know one thing that has become quite standardized with Instagram is gearing this all over the place and, yeah. and working really well. Uh, I mean, yeah, I remember doing, well, we probably had a 54, 49 chain rings. I mean, the, basically the point being the jump between our two chain rings was ridiculously small. It's mm-hmm. like, just keep it in the big ring the whole time for Ubay. Um, but I imagine that might be a place where team mechanics would be like, duh, we've been doing 53, uh, 39 forever. What are, what are we supposed to do differently? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely um, a lot different both for the mechanics but also for, like, support structure. Mm -hmm. Um, On races, like, especially, like, Roubaix is a great example. We always help out with wheels um, because that one is literally a race of survival (laughs) in a lot of ways. Um, And so it's a combination of, like, yes, you need to go fast and stay with the group, but, like, if you're bike and your equipment doesn't hold up through the race, then, like, you're not going to make it to the end, which, yeah, it's kind of an important part of racing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so those, like, from our perspective, definitely look differently. For the mechanics perspective, also looks differently. Um, The cobbles are are an experience in themselves. Um, Mm -hmm. I... I can't, uh, I never had a good grasp on what it was like until I actually rode them. And I came in really, really cocky, like, oh, I'm a gravel rider. This will be yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But it's a whole different show, and uh-huh. it, it sucks. <laughs> it does. It's ridiculous. Um, I tell people to go ride, get, like, spend a little time on a highway and go ride the rumble strip. Exactly. You just cannot yeah. get, you can't get a, um, you feel like you've lost all momentum. Even if you're yes. going 20 miles an hour, it just feels wrong. Well, and then you, there's like so much like vibration that you're getting yeah. um, that it's like, and it's rhythmic. So it's like, I remember I was riding the Arnberg and I was like, my vision literally yeah. started going out and yeah. I couldn't see where I was going. And I was like, this is wild. Um, 100%. And it's not like you can pick your line either. Like, you can a little, but it's still a cobblestone yeah. area. Like, yeah. you're still going to get wrecked. Were you at uh, Roubaix 2022? Was that the rainy year? No, I missed that one. Okay. I got to watch that one on TV, which yeah. was lovely for me. Pure but carnage. everyone else was suffering. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've just had dusty, sunny years, which is kind of nice. 
That's that is helpful. Although that yeah. the dust becomes like a talc, and then it's still kind of weird, oddly slippery. But I got I got bronchitis too standing out there. <laughs> oh, like my word. when you work at the wheels, you stand on the side of the road and in certain spots of certain segments, um, and you just kind of have to stand there and hold them up. So like right. athletes will see you as they come through, um, and keep an eye for your athletes and kind of watch their wheels as they go by. Um, and so basically like you're standing there and the whole motorcade comes through the front and then the riders all come through and then the whole motorcade on the back comes through. And so it's just this massive dust storm. Yeah. You're like trying to keep your eyes open to see what's going on and like not breathe, but it's like a good few minutes of, of, uh, movement. Mm-hmm. So you just breathe in all the dust and mm-hmm. sometimes you're okay. And sometimes you're not. It's a good time to bring a mask around. Yeah, I uh, I was actually thinking about that. I think one year I was like, dang, I wish I had my mask with me. Yeah. This would have been perfect. Yep. But. Uh, unrelated, we just did uh, the last best ride in Whitefish, mm-hmm. and the air quality was a little bit questionable, and it ended up being fine on race day, which was wonderful. But then there was a time we were following a car down a really dusty yeah. road, and I'm like, guaranteed AQI behind this car is like 300. And yeah. the rest of the day, it's like a mere 80, so... Yeah, Yeah. you sort of wonder how bad it is for you. Um, So I'm trying to paint the picture, or paint the picture in my mind of the different events that you go to and how each one is going to have a different feel. So you were talking about what Roubaix would be like, for example. Mm -hmm. Here we are. Okay, this is a little bit anomalous, but here we are in Steamboat Mm -hmm. with, and I say anomalous because there's a huge group of ceramics here. Mm -hmm. Um, There are still plenty of races that you go to, and you are a one-person show. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of what I do is mostly focused uh, with the athletes. So even if there are a lot of people here, I usually am off doing my own thing just because my day revolves around timing with athletes and making sure that you guys have all that you need. Um, whereas, you know, at Steamboat's a great example. We have a massive events crew working on setting up, tearing down making sure everything's sorted, um, spending time talking to people at the expo. Um, this is also a big one where, where a lot of people from the industry come in. So um, it's a good opportunity for us to meet up and, and make sure um, we're spending time with those relationships and chatting with different brands. And, you know, it's it's kind of, um, somebody said it, but it's kind of a little bit like a, a late season sea otter. Sure, yeah. Because <laughs> there's so many people here. It is, um, it is a scene. Yeah, that yeah. Is for sure. So it's it gets pretty busy sometimes when I'm on on my own, just depending on how many athletes I have. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally, we'll have um, somebody else join in to to help out with that. Um, so it, it really depends on the race and, and kind of the quantity of athletes we're expecting, yeah. of of what we need equipment wise, what we need support wise, and and all of that. Well, yeah, it's got to be a mix of anticipated work like if i'm rolling in i'm like uh i need a new chain or cassette or what have you i mean that's relatively simple and then the last minute needs of like <laughs> as we were waiting somebody's wheel gets shipped overnight it'd be like we need an entire new wheel so yeah, yeah keep trying your toes it's uh for sure like i spend a day packing for races just going through all the athletes what bikes they have what standards they need like bottom <laughs> bracket wise um, I Thank try you. to predict gearing that they'll be using. Like I 
generally have a, a bit of an idea based on like the athlete and their riding style, but you know, making sure I have enough uh, spare derailleurs and cassettes and chains and you know all the all the small pieces that you might get along the way. Um, so it takes some time and like logistics of making sure I have enough and can fit it all in my flying box. Um, but you know, it's it's easy for you to to get to a moment where you're like, oh no, I need more of this. I need more of that. Um, so there was actually for this race being um, the week after Leadville, I had to pack from mountain bike all the way down through um, to to like almost road style gravel stuff. And then how about what is what is going to cyclocross races like? Because that's almost like an amalgamation of the independents versus the teams. Yeah, it really depends again on in, on who will be there. Um, it. A lot of it is a bit more team-based, so it does feel a little bit more like the European World Tour style where you are going and you're focused on the mechanics rather than directly with the athletes because they have that support structure. Um, It's not as deep of a support structure for sure, Um, but yeah, that one's a good one to have. And I mean, cyclocross is probably the most ridiculous thing you can do on to your bike and to your equipment. <laughs> um, so you definitely just kind of have to be aware of that and prepared to, to see like how stuff has survived and whatnot. I, I can see that. I was going to yeah. say maybe somebody in like the downhill or freestyle world might that's speak differently, but fair. maybe they have fewer derailers. There's like some... I feel like those derailers too are designed to hold up to that yeah. ridiculousness. Whereas yeah. like a lot of the cyclocross components are basically just road components thrown on a bike that yes. you're gonna ride around in the mud for a while and then spray down full blast. Right. Pressure, pressure wash it quick yeah. give them the new bike yeah, yeah yeah okay that makes total so, sense not i'm not discrediting mountain biking it is also very hard on bikes it's just um i feel like those bikes are probably a little bit beefier for mm-hmm. that sort of expectation yeah. agreed um okay an existential question that i've been posed to me a lot and it's always being batted around this day and age and we've talked about it a little bit what do you think of the professionalization that's going on in gravel? Oh, that's an interesting topic. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely it's exciting to watch the changes that gravel is going through, um, but I think it's it's scary for a lot of people because it is changing. Mm-hmm. Um, I thrive on inconsistency, just personally. Um, so change is always something where I get I get excited about it. Um, it can be hard, and it definitely leaves a different perspective. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I think. And it's not like yeah, it's not it's, an easy question. Hard, you can't answer in like is. two minutes. Yeah, and I've had a lot of discussion, like um, being so connected to the roadside. Um, a lot of people I talk to are are set that gravel will become road cycling with teens and structure and all of that. And I think, you know, there, there will be a little of that that happens, but I think also the, the, what draws people to gravel is a little bit of the personal challenge that, that separation from that team structure, the individuality of it. So I think within the sport or discipline itself, there is a lot of resistance to that translation happening. Um, 
So I, I'm really curious to see how it will unfold because it really can go a multitude of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll be really interesting to see how that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that I could predict how it goes, but I think there's definitely some resistance to just hopping on the, the road bandwagon. Right. Um, we've seen it in the States. We've seen that it doesn't work in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not cultural here like it is in Europe in a lot of places. Um, so I think that's why gravel has become so successful in the States compared to road cycling. Mm-hmm. Because it's safer, it's more manageable, it suits our cultural style better. Um, and so, you know, we're going to see changes for sure. But I think there still will be that that gritty little side discipline of that grassroots gravel vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think with the UCI coming on, it definitely changes things and definitely gives you a bit of a more of a road vibe. Um, I think Europe is still like kind of figuring out what gravel is to them. Um, and it's definitely not the same as what it is to, to America um, or North America or, you know, it's different place to place. And that's kind of the fun thing with gravel too. It's all the races are so different. Agreed. And I was talking to Tiffany Cromwell last night and I was asking her about her experience doing some of the UCI gravel series events. And she talks about a very different taste and flavor and style of events that are taking place held under the UCI banner and just basically outside of the U.S. because there is sort of this arm's distance, you know, keep it away from me approach (laughs) here in America because I think these events can succeed successfully without the help of the UCI. They don't need sanctioning. They don't need all of these things that other up-and-coming events overseas would benefit from. Absolutely. I mean, we've seen it happen. Like, I feel Unbound is like that quintessential event that people really want to come over and try. Yeah. And as someone who's been there a few times, it looks brutal and horrible, but (laughs) that doesn't mean people don't want to try it. Um, Yeah. Quick interlude. When I decided that 185 miles of the XL was about my limit, Anna was the one who kindly picked me up at (laughs) 3 in the morning. 3 a.m. phone call. Yeah, exactly. Um, Hey, uh, what are you doing? What are you doing? (laughs) Um, And, you know, what I also find really interesting and what makes this entire conversation, the one about the existentialism of gravel, so interesting is that you end up constantly um, having competing thoughts. I have competing thoughts come out of my mind, my mouth all the time. For example... Here in America, and you just said it, here in America, I, I always say the same thing. Like, we have a grittier, different sense of gravel. This is like, this is where it started, and it's grassroots, and it's still, it's, it's different. And that's why we don't appease the UCI and UCI rules. At the same time, there is a homogenization that's happening. Like, what Lifetime has done, they've created a structure that that is successful for them and it's very hard for the upstart gravel person to mimic that you know they have a 50 person event and then it's 150 and then it's 157 and then it's 160 and then it's it sits 160 and they're like well you know what i'm gonna stop doing that so yeah i mean we're all looking at our crystal balls trying to figure out what gravel is but i say this in light of the professionalism that is going on where your job fits in because i feel like more and more there are teams that are coming in, one or two person teams are coming with their mechanic, and I'm like, I still grasp onto the idea of being like, I'm my own terrible mechanic, <laughs> and thank goodness there's an Anna in the world who can, when I show up at these races, can, can get me out of a pinch. 
Gravel so. is hard on bikes. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think to make it work for a lot of athletes, you need that larger structure in some ways. And, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we talk a lot about pay on the world tour level, especially between men and women. And, you know, the same thing happens on gravel. Um, it's challenging as a privateer to pull all the different threads to get your income and to be able to then use that to support your success in the right ways. Um, so I think there is a lot of, of traction that can be gained from having somewhat of a, a team structure mm-hmm. where you know you you have a mechanical resource you have a shared space like uh, you know a lot of these places like hotels are expensive mm-hmm. um, housing is challenging so if you get uh, an Airbnb and you can split that between a bunch of people that saves you a massive amount of money and sure. um, same thing with like a mechanic you know if you have that shared resource it it allows you to be able to get what you need without having to invest as much of you know the the pile that you're you're working with into mm-hmm. it. Um, so yeah, I think from that perspective, I think that's definitely something that will become more common. Um, but when it comes to actually in the race, you know, the tactics, there's a lot of debate going on of of what's okay and what's not okay and. Um, I think that one's still something that we're all sorting out, but I think you definitely see that a lot more um, with, I mean, the UCI um, Gravel Championship, World Championship last year was a road race. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that's also from an American perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there were quite a bit, bit of bunches, and so you had a lot more of those tactics going on, and it was very different than what gravel is defined in America as. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's still a ton of learning. There's some edges that are being kind of smoothed out and some consistencies that you're seeing, but um, I don't think we'll ever stop seeing the the grassroots level races because that speaks to people. Sure. Um, and the Lifetime Grand Prix doesn't speak to everyone. Um, it's, a, it's a long, long series. It's a exhausting series watching you guys all go through this is like i feel for it because it's yeah. you know you you all have those races mid-year where it's it's everybody's time to be down and everybody comes through just like disappointed exhausted and and that's like probably one of the bigger challenges that the series has is just how long and spaced out everything is yep. and that is definitely not a successful thing for a lot of athletes especially this day and age when results are wicked important. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is so much else going on. I mean, Absolutely. what I'm beating around the bush is like, there's, there is the social media, there's the promotion. Like we aren't a hundred percent pure athletes. Even a Keegan who is at the peak of his physiological prowess and just crushing everything. He's a great social media presence mm-hmm. and he does it well. And, uh, yeah, there's just a lot. There's a lot to the job, you know. Anyway, jumping back to your historical cycling roots. Yes. How did you get into cycling? Yes. Um, so my dad um, did some racing in like college and stuff, and has always liked bikes. Nothing too crazy serious, but um, enough that he was a cycling fan from the start. And mm-hmm. so I grew up watching Tour de France on TV, um, and like. 
think my first bike was like a drop bar bike that was too big for me but you know it did the job um and so I just kind of like I was around bikes I was interested in bikes and then I remember I asked my dad um like to teach me how to work on bikes and my dad's an engineer he's not a mechanic Mm -hmm. um (laughs) which is a difference (laughs) um but he was like you know what just get a job at a bike shop and then you can learn how to do things the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did and it was great. Um, I went into um, a shop that like we had family connections with and I was very clear that I wanted to learn how to be a mechanic um, and that's what I was interested in. Um, I think a lot of women who go into shops get put into sales positions. Sure. Um, so... I was very adamant that I wanted to be primarily a mechanic, and I, I was really lucky to end up in the shop that I did. I was able to learn everything I know about bikes there, and I never went to like a bike school or anything like that. Yeah. Learned everything in a shop and just through experience, and and spent some time there, and then kind of got to the point of the shop where you could kind of do anything, and I was like kind of looking for that next challenge, and that's what led me into a SRAM race tech life. And. I worked in a shop. I would do the most basic of wrenching opportunities, and otherwise I was on the sales floor. Um, so I didn't have that same experience. Like, when you want to learn how to bleed brakes, you just said to whoever, like, were, did you have one mentor or a series of, like, all of your coworkers there who were like, teach me how to bleed, bleed brakes? Yeah, so it was a family-run shop. So the owner was around, um, and he had he had been in business for, like, 45 years. Yeah. Um, so in the Chicago area, Schwinn was a big thing. So he knew all the, like, Schwinn stuff, had all the, like, things there. And then um, his son was our head mechanic. Um, so he was the one that, like, knew all the modern stuff. And so it was very much, like hey, how do I do this? And, you know, he would show me and I could ask questions. And it was great. I I think as mechanics, we all need to, like, touch things and do things to learn. Um, And so it was was a good environment where, you know, you could take your time to learn it. And it wasn't like, you know, you're wasting money, you're wasting dollars. It was very much an encouraging uh, environment to be part of. So, yeah, yeah, it was pretty much, um, like, one person that I got a lot of my knowledge from and then some of the older stuff I learned um, from from our owner. So. Super cool. Um, in doing... Sorry, where did you go to college? Um, I went to the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, Central Illinois. What's convenient about Googling your name in preparation <laughs> for a podcast is there are not a lot of anagritises. So... I found a Facebook post that said, shout out to Anna Gritas for helping design the cycling kit for oh, yeah. your collegiate cycling team. I was like, oh, that's so rad. Yeah, yeah. We weren't super official or anything, but... No, um, I, yeah. With the exception fun, of Fort like, Lewis, and there's no such thing as official yeah. cycling clubs. Yeah. It's a smaller sport in the States. Yeah. <laughs> um, and recognizing that, okay, you are a, a mechanic in Chicago doesn't necessarily... I mean, does it intuitive be like, oh, I'm going to go work at SRAM? Or what were your, what did you think you wanted to go do? Well, actually, before you answer that, what did you have a degree in? Um, <laughs> so my degree, I double majored in chemistry and environmental science. Perfect. Yeah, so it's super, super applicable to my day-to-day these yes. days. Um, like titration. Yes, yes. Um, I can spit out a few chemical formulas if you need them, but most people don't and look at me like I'm crazy. Um, 
which is also fun. Uh, yeah, so I uh, learned, um, I think my last year at university, that I did not like working in a lab. <laughs> Um, it's great timing to to make that discovery um and chemistry is a really hard one because if you're not a chemical engineer and you're just pure chemistry you pretty much have to get your phd if you want to do anything other than just be like some someone's lab gremlin for a while um which you know like for some people they they jam on that um i do not i really love nature um i did a research project that um was through our our natural resources like department and so i got to go out and collect my own samples in a pond which was like super great nature vibes and then i spent like the rest of the year in a tiny one room uh lab that had four vacuum pumps going simultaneously and no windows and that was, I think, what broke me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so graduating from, from university, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I struggled for a while um, to find something because my priority has always been to do something that I love um, and to really prioritize that. Yep. Um, so I worked at a brewery for a bit. Nice. Um, that was that was fun. Um, and then I started working at the shop again as a mechanic. I had started before school. Um, and I was like, oh, wait, I really like this. And that's kind of where things really took off on the mechanic side. And yeah, yeah so then SRAM was actually, um, <laughs> I had a preset bias. Um, I have family members that work there. So um, me being the little stink that I was, I was like, no way I'm going to work there. Never. I'm my own person. Um, And so I kind of tried to avoid uh, applying to SRAM for a while, just purely out of like uh, youngest child angst. (laughs) Um, But then, you know, I was sent the the opening for the race tech role and I read through it and I was like, shoot, this sounds perfect this sounds everything mechanics there's the interpersonal relationship heaps of travel like this is made for me um so i i kind of sucked up my angst and uh went and applied for it and i was very adamant that you know the family at sram i was like you cannot say anything you're not allowed to say anything i'm not affiliated with any of you if i get this job i'm gonna get it because i deserve it exactly and that's it Uh um i think that was definitely challenging but um for for them but it, that's how it worked out and it was kind of funny in, in some of the interview process because you know like HR had to like ask a question like do you have any family members that work at SRAM right. um, and nobody was really sure who I was like you know similar last names like oh but maybe it's just a coincidence and so it worked out the way I wanted it to which was good um, but yeah then the, the rest is history been running around the world since and Chicago is home yeah, um, outside of Chicago, so in the suburbs, um, so Chicago land. Chicago land, Cabda, the Chicago. Proper land. Chicagoans really are are very personally offended if I say I'm from Chicago, yeah. but it works out because then I can put ketchup on my hot dogs because I'm Which not you can't from do Chicago. In the, okay. No, no, that's okay. a big sin in the city of Chicago. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Is that like upstate New York or anything outside of New York City is upstate? Like Chicago land is anything outside of. Uh, it's like within a radius. Like, okay. like if you go to Chicago, it's like the big city in the middle, but then the suburbs stretch in all directions yeah. for a good bit. Like, so I'm on the very edge of the suburbs. I'm a good 40 miles away from the city, but it's all pretty built up all the way out. How um, often are you in the office? Uh, 
depends on the time of the year, but um, I do a lot of travel, and then I work from home when I can because of the travel, and yeah. also I, sometimes I just don't want to take the train into the office, but yeah. Fact. Yeah. I hear that. I probably will. As someone who doesn't um, report to an office. Yeah. Um, so... You travel a bunch. You work a bunch. You're always on your toes. You're basically on call at all hours. Or at least I call <laughs> you at all hours. That's how I describe it, yeah. How do you relax? <laughs> how do you rest? How do you seek your R&R? Yeah, so um, biking was always that for me. Um, yeah. And I was always really, like, I never got into racing um, because I really didn't want to lose that, like, sense of meditation yeah. and escape that it gave me. Um, so it still is a little bit that, but there's definitely like the pressures to represent the brand and like, I mean, I, I have a really sick bike. Um, mm-hmm. so it gives impressions when people see it. I don't want to be the person that rolls up and then just like falls over clipped in. Yeah. Uh, I do that all the time. <laughs> I'm, I'm not uh, afraid to admit it. Uh-huh. Um, it's been a while since I've done that. So that's going to sneak up on me and, uh, <laughs> hit right when it's most embarrassing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, biking is still very much that I like to ride by myself a lot and just kind of escape. Um, running has also been that too. I've, I've done that, especially in the winter because Chicago winters suck. Um, I've been doing a lot of mountain biking this year, which I think is enough different that I can kind of separate it from the work. Mm -hmm. Um, to the point that when I hopped on my gravel bike yesterday, I was like, holy cow, these bars are tiny. Why have they always been this small? And I was (laughs) like, Oh, right. I've been riding mountain bikes. Yeah. 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 That's funny. (laughs) But yeah, no, it's, um, it's still like sports that, that kind of helped me find that meditative state Yeah. and my cat. He's pretty cute. Like it. Um, amid the myriad types of events and the different events and the different races that you're going to, are there any standouts? Do you have some that are your favorites or type of events? Or like, do you love going to, to TDFFAAZ? <laughs> Nailed it. Swift. <laughs> What's your, what are your favorite favorites? Yeah. Um, Roubaix is really fun because yeah. that, that is just wild. Um, and I, I secretly love to see the roadies suffer a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's good for them. Big time. <laughs> That's why I like gravel. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, so Roubaix is, is a super fun one. And that one we get really involved with the spare wheels. So it's, it's a little bit more invested than some of the other races. Um, I, I love Steamboat. I talk about it yeah. all the time. But um, I think they do a good job. It's raining. It's raining. Interesting. It's funny. That's that's a recent update. Um, <laughs> um, I think Steamboat does a really good job of being aware of like the local community and respecting that, mm-hmm. um, but still putting on a really good race. Yeah. Um, and so I I think I have a lot of respect for the event that they're able to maintain that that combination at such a big level, um, where it doesn't feel too. I mean, this year it definitely is pretty big, but it it still doesn't feel like too much of a production. It's it's a lot of like good vibes happening. So um, this is one of my favorite ones for sure. And I actually get to ride my bike at Ooh, yeah. this one. So. Oh, that's mega! Sixty whole miles. Excellent on um, on event day. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. rad. Race day. Yeah. I'm a girl. That's it's great. great. Yeah, it's perfect because it's not like a ton of effort, so I can still have a good time. Yeah. Um, I can cruise along, and then I'm still back in time to watch you guys all roll through. Perfect. Yeah. Um, 
going back to, you know, you said Rubeo is one of your favorite races. I raced for a very traditional Italian cycling team. <laughs> and I mean traditional, like literally pasta for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, which is the weirdest thing to get a bowl of spaghetti for breakfast. I grew up as a swimmer, yeah. and I was force-fed pasta in the mornings at like 6 a.m. before yeah. swim meets. I, I struggle with pasta to this day. <laughs> I, I can't help but think of, is it Streganona, that like child's book about the pasta that just overflows the whole house and town? Just, <laughs> there's too much pasta. It's delicious, but there's too much. There's a, yeah. there's a time yeah. and place. It's called dinner. Um, <laughs> the point being, we had very few female staff. I remember, I think we had one uh, Swanier, and I, I, you know, you have a very personal experience with this one year like you're laying on your back for an hour and you talk to her about anything Mm -hmm. i felt like an island being a sole american i take that back i was teammates with timmy duggan for two years and then i was the sole american on the team and it was like that experience was difficult and i spoke with her a lot about her experience being very difficult um, being a woman in this male-dominated team especially and then industry and certainly there have been changes i guess my point being have you had Difficulties, pushbacks, speed bumps. Yes. And what? What? Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine it yes. smooth sailing. What? What it's, have they looked like? It's definitely challenging. Um, there's a lot of different aspects that fall into it. Um, like the sport of cycling in general is a historic sport, so there are a lot of people who are older and invested in the sport who have very traditional views on. Um, gender roles and and so you know you go up against that a little bit Um, there are a lot of cultural variations with differences in gender roles as well and so you know different different cultures you really struggle with that and and how you hold yourself Um, and then there's also just like you know the the culture of mechanics um you can tell the difference between a good and a bad mechanic with how much they think of themselves. Um, there are mechanics that I work with who are absolute legends and are always like, Hey, can you show me how to do this? And that's like, that's all you need to do. Like there's, there should be no ego involved, but there is because Mm -hmm. we are humans. Mm -hmm. Um, but when that ego is involved, it's definitely more challenging um, you definitely have to fight against it, and there's a lot more dismissal as a woman. Um, you know, I've had lots of interactions where, um, you know, I, I think bleeding breaks is a big one um, for me because I was, like, afraid of it when I was learning, and so I made a point to really, really understand how it works, and now that's something that I'm very good at and I understand very well. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of people... Like the cycling world as mechanics is very tribal knowledge. What you do and how you learn is what the people before you have done and taught you. Mm. But that's not how technology works. Things change and develop and grow. And so you also have to change and develop and grow. So just because somebody taught you how to do it this way, you know, five years ago, doesn't mean that that's still how you do it. Um, My job is to make sure that the product is being set up correctly which means that when I observe somebody who's not setting something up correctly, I need to tell them, hey, man, mm-hmm. you know, have you tried doing this? Do you do this? Um, and I try to approach it um, from a, a really 
considerate way because, you know, as someone who has also been questioned on their methods, like, you get very nervous. You're like, oh, God, what am I doing wrong? Like, oh, oh, no. Um, So I try to do it very sensitively, but, you know, you you get those... um, those return statements all the time of like, well, I've been bleeding breaks for years. Somebody legitimately told me that like a couple of years ago while I was working in this role. Wow. Um, you know, and those are the moments too where it's like, I am sassy. Right. <laughs> I I was in a shop where I was allowed to ha- have a little extra sass. Yeah. Um, which I value very much. <laughs> um, so you know, in those roles, I want to I want to clap back and say all sorts of things, sure. but that's not productive. Yeah. Like that yeah. is not going to make that situation any better it will make it worse in fact Mm -hmm. so you know I try to um I try to maintain an air of professionalism um and you know I I try to encourage them to adjust those techniques um but at the end of the day like if they're setting something up wrong for an athlete that's a problem that athlete's going to have a problem they're going to have a bad experience with the product Mm -hmm. and then that's going to put a bad taste in their mouth and that's not what I want to have happen so I do have to call people out on stuff and it's not always comfortable but it's it doesn't always happen and there's been people that I've worked with who are amazing and so it you don't always know what you're getting into and you just kind of have to be on your toes and yeah. ready to to see how they're going to perceive you and then make sure you can adjust to to make the situation as best as possible. Well said. Thank you. And very diplomatic. <laughs> um, just wait till after when we uh, when we're sipping on a beer. I'll, yeah. I'll let the real <laughs> the real story go. Here we go. This is the rest of the story. Um, <clears throat> in doing this research, I uh, spent some time on Mariah Wilson's website. Yeah. Dear friend. Yes. The late great. And she posed a question that I thought was so good. You did an interview with her mm-hmm. on the website, and I thought it was so good that I'm going to pose it again, and you can answer <laughs> it if the same or, or, or different over the years. You've worked in the cycling industry your entire life and mostly in male-dominated roles. What has this experience been like as a woman, and how do you think the cycling industry is doing in regards to creating equal opportunities for female mechanics? Yeah, that's a, it was a really good question. I remember her asking me that. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's I, I definitely have to say, like, stepping back and looking at the world as a whole, not just the cycling bubble, um, the bike industry, I think, does a great job of being open. Um, I think there's still a lot of work that we need to do, though. Um, so I think I think a lot of it starts at base level. Um, it's hard as a woman to start working in a bike shop. It's supremely intimidating. It's hard to be vulnerable in that situation and to go in not knowing anything and ask to be taught and admit that vulnerability um, because that's setting you up to be in that vulnerable place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like my defensive mechanism is is to kind of shut down and, and be just like in my own bubble to be like, fine I don't need to know this kind of thing like Mm -hmm. to to dismiss those emotions but to be able to step into a lot of the roles in the bike industry you do have to admit that vulnerability and put yourself out there Uh, but that action also is what makes 
us as women or, you know, non-male people um, better at continuing to learn and continuing develop. Um, because we're already forced to go through that, like, uncomfortable period, yeah. it's easier for us the next time that we have to do that and be like, hey, can you show me how to do this? Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, it's hard, but there are a lot of things that you can pull for, like, silver linings in that process that make you stronger, that make you better. Yep. Um, I think, like, I'm going to talk very binary here just because that's my experience in the world. Uh-huh. Um, but, like... As, as a woman working in a bike shop with a bunch of guys, I had different attributes that benefited the shop than the guys did. And so I was able to bring something else to the board. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people in similar situations that have a different perspective, have different talents, have different focuses that will really benefit something. And it's just a matter of building people up to get to those points. I think that initial step into the industry is the hardest part. And that's really the limiting factor. Um, Just because, like, somebody is non-male and doesn't mean that they're the best candidate for a job. Um, So it's learning ways that we can develop that baseline so that people can get into it and then become the best candidate for the job, regardless of gender or identification or any of those things. Um, So... It's hard. It's exhausting. Um, I handle it a lot of times with humor and sass, <laughs> which, you know, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but that's that's how I've been able to um, deal with it. Um, but I think, yeah, it's it's that initial step in the door that that is the most challenging to overcome. But also finding that door that will allow you to be vulnerable, invest in you, teach you, give you that space to learn your confidence, and then be able to go and sass people when they're dumb. (laughs) That's perfect. It's so well said. Um, How old were you when you first stepped into that bike shop looking for that that mechanic role? That is a great question. Um, Probably like 16 to 18 that's somewhere in there nuts yeah and I say that from my experience I think I was probably 18 and I thought it was intimidating and that I mean to your point you said it was a family friendly shop and they were welcoming you know there's the the thought the intuitive picture in a lot of people's minds of a bike shop is the curmudgeonly bike shop I still get very nervous going into bike shops. Yeah? <laughs> yes. I, like, it's funny to think about because, like, I know what I'm doing. Completely. Um, but it is so intimidating even now. Like, I am intimidated walking into bike shops if I need something. Um, and then I get really nervous and I, like, start sweating. And I'm like, hey, can I have a, a, a this? <laughs> and what are you, are you nervous about? Like being spoken down to, or yeah, I think in some ways, but I, I don't know. I think if that was the case, I would deal with it easier because that's what I'm used to. I just it feels like I just don't know what to expect yeah. because it's so vast. So maybe it's like yeah. that, like I don't know what I'm getting into kind of feeling. But I don't know. There's just there's still this like mental block that I have walking into a bike shop yeah. and where I get crazy intimidated. Yeah, I'm thinking, 
I don't have that experience, but you and I are going in with very different experiences, needless to say. <laughs> I go in with ignorance is bliss. I'm like, I can identify the name of a part, probably. But, I mean, yeah, my point is poor. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, is, that is very interesting. Yeah. It's, I, I feel like maybe it's um, an internal, like, personal expectation of, like, I should know everything. Like, mm. I need to be perfect, which is super realistic sarcasm. <laughs> um, but, yeah, there is this deep intimidation that happens every single time. It's super annoying. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could just go in and hang out, but, no. Nah. Well, anytime my bike needs TLC, it comes back a thousand times better after you've looked at it. So, <laughs> appreciate it. Okay, in an attempt to give you the rest of your Friday and make it to happy hour, um, we wrap with three very important questions. Number one. What is your favorite place to ride a bike? Number two, what is the number one place that you would like to ride a bike that you've never ridden? And three, with whom, living or otherwise, fictitious or non, with whom would you like to go for a bike ride? Whoa. So, favorite uh, place to ride a bike? Yeah, those are, those are big questions. I know. Um, Life-changing. I would say the Keweenaw Peninsula of Michigan. Ooh. Yeah, I grew up going up there with my my dad, and he grew up going up there as a as a kid. Um, there's a place called Copper Harbor that's got some pretty cool mountain bike trails up there. Nice. Um, for the Midwest, they're pretty solid. Yeah. <laughs> Let me put this into perspective <laughs> first. Um, <laughs> um, and then also, I, I grew up road riding there, and I think that's really kind of when I embraced cycling as my own thing, not just a kid following along with what their dad does. Um, So, yeah, I just have fond memories up there. I usually go up there at least once a year. I've been up there twice so far this year. So, nailing that. Uh Um, But yeah, it's just nice and it's relaxing and it's beautiful and um, yeah, just like campfires on the beach for dinner, watching the sunset. Uh, Like, Pretty solid. Nice. Pretty solid. So if you need a recommendation. Spell it. Keweenaw. K-E-W-E-E-N-A-W. Keweenaw Peninsula. Noted. Yeah. It's like as far north as you can go in Michigan before you start getting into um, Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Isle Royale National Park is right off of there. Okay. Yeah. You take the ferry from Copper Harbor to get there. That's supposed to be amazing riding. Yeah. I haven't been there yet. Okay. Which is sad. That could be your number two. What's the number one place you'd like to ride a bike you've never ridden? Yeah, I mean, that is a really good option. Um, Although I would say there's so many places. I love to travel. This is is where it gets dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, The first thing that came to mind was Iceland. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been wanting to to get over there because that just looks wild. It looks absolutely brutal and fully exhausting, um, but also, like, just literally out of this world yes that's how i've ridden there only once and that's how i often describe it you feel like you're on another planet yeah i feel like that would just be wild i i am like a daydreamer on a bike too like i don't have to race so i'm just spinning along like looking at the birds taking pictures (laughs) stopping for snacks maybe having a beer here and there you know um i'm enjoying my time fully um and so i feel like I would not make it very far in Iceland because yeah. I'd just be like, oh, look at that bug. Wow, that's a cool rock. Or you'd be like, yo, that's a huge volcano. Let's go right around it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So. I would get uh, 
super lost there in the best way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was the first one that came to mind. Fjord. Yes. Oh, so fun. And also, I've flown over Greenland several mm-hmm. times, and that looks like a wild place, too. Yeah. So, you know, that area of the <laughs> globe would be just wild. That and first, if anyone rough. says they want to go ride in Greenland. Yeah. I don't think, I don't know if there's a lot of riding in, like, Greenland. I can't imagine there is. What do they say? Greenland is icy and Iceland is green? Yeah. I heard a story one time in, like, history that they, like, reversed the name so less people would come to Iceland. <laughs> um which I kind of love because yeah. it's just like a <laughs> suckers. Don't come. Um, cannot confirm that this is true, okay. um, but you know, rumors. Rumors. You gotta start somewhere. Uh huh. Um, yeah. So that's what I would choose. Excellent choice. Who would I ride a bike with? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, like I get to ride bikes with my dad all the time, and, mm-hmm. and that's super fun. Um, so. That's definitely the first one that comes to mind. Um, he is living. He is not fictitious. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean that's always fun. I remember like trying to hang on to his wheels like a little skinny child, um, and now like I've gotten him in on mountain biking and he's yeah. like loving it. And um, roles have reversed, so um, that's kind of wild. Unless he's on his e-bike, and then I'm like huffing and puffing yeah, to try and keep yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got, he's got some mad skills. Um, so, yeah, that's the first one that comes to mind, I guess I would say him. That's a great answer. Yeah. And now, as a father of a young daughter who is now pedaling her own bike, I can tell you that's very special for your dad, too. Yeah, yeah. He always he teases me sometimes when I do interviews and bring him up because yeah. he is greatly intertwined in my cycling adventure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I like to tease him sometimes, and uh, I think he gets a kick out of it. That's awesome. Hopefully. Hopefully he's not uh, <laughs> bothered by it. Darn it, <laughs> Sorry, Dad. <laughs> not again. Exactly. <laughs> well, greatly appreciated. Heck, yeah. Excellent. Impeccable timing. Nailed it. No late interruptions. I call that perfect. Well, thank you very much, Anna. You are welcome. <laughs>